everybody. Uh, welcome to the new episode of this third season of The King and I with me, Dr. Spencer King, and myself, Ron Waxman. Welcome, everybody. Welcome, Spencer. And uh, let uh, you choose the topic today. <laughs> well, Ron, I was asked to talk to the fellows about the guidelines, uh, the revascularization guidelines and also the chest pain guidelines. I was <laughs> so... I've written a bunch of these guidelines in the past, but it's been a long time since I actually read one. And so I've, I've uh, slogged through the uh, uh, chest pain guideline, and I found it uh, somewhat interesting, and I, I thought we might chat about it and, and, and bring it up in terms of what we're actually doing and, and what the guidelines say that we should be doing and uh, see if there are inconsistencies and see... Uh, what uh, some of those might be. That's a great idea. I mean, there are many topics on the guidelines. I, I know some people are not happy with them. Definitely not the surgeons actually didn't sign on those, but that's maybe a different topic. Yeah, that's that's the revascularization ones, and that uh, that we could talk about as well. But but uh, since uh, we only have so much time on this one, I prefer to talk about the the actual chest pain guidelines and, and patient shows up with chest pain. What do we do? What do we do with that nowadays? And uh, formally we've had uh, updates uh, from the guidelines of various sorts, but uh, right now uh, a writing group has written a, r- a rather definitive thing based on, uh, you know, a lot of studies and trials and whatnot. And, and I think it's worth, uh, worth taking a look at. Uh, they divide this thing up into two uh, general areas, uh, acute presentation of chest pain, emergency room, people show up, and then uh, stable chest pain. And, and both of them are addressing what, what we should do. And uh, although there are many, many things, and they're, they're, they write down 10 take-home uh, points, and those are interesting. Uh, and maybe we should run through those, what they are, but but... Before that, I'd like to look at the main issue, which I think is uh, how we address acute uh, acute chest pain. I jotted down uh, uh, what, what I think are the main uh, issues there. First of all, they classify everybody into three categories. Uh, you, you show up at the at the emergency room. You've either got a low, uh, intermediate, or high risk situations. And how do they classify that? And, and you know, we've had all these uh, classifications like uh, GRACE score and heart scores and all kinds of things. But it's, as I read this, it comes down now, uh, primarily most of these things have been driven by troponin. And the big change in these guidelines is that the high sensitivity troponin is recommended as, as almost the singular thing that should drive the decision-making about uh, how it goes. So we've got a, I I looked hard and long trying to figure out what the definition of a low intermediate and high was. And I think I've finally gotten it figured out. So low risk is less than 1% risk of 30 day MACE. In other words, if you have a condition that predicts less than 1% risk of 30 day MACE, they're classifying that as low. And that as you'll see, it drives a lot of decision-making. High risk is defined as, uh, okay, let me read it to you. New EKG changes, 
or uh, uh, abnormality. Now, obviously, STEMI gives you a, a very high risk, and I'm sort of leaving STEMI off the table here, but new EKG changes. Positive troponins, by the definitions that, that they've got, high, ten, high sensitivity. You got a definite positive troponin. You got LV uh, changes, LV reduction uh, with an ejection fraction of less than 40. New, newly diagnosed or uh, moderate or severe ischemia. So that means you've had a you've you've had a stress test or you've had a uh, or you've had a, a, a chemical ischemia test or a, a CTFFR, for example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, or you've got hemodynamic change. Okay. So, so these are things that uh, uh, hemodynamic instability. So that gives you the high risk. So everything in between the low risk, which is this uh, basically a normal troponin, everything, everything that gives you a less than 1% chance of a, of event by 30 days. You got high risk that I've just mentioned. And then you got a bunch of things uh, in between that are not really defined, but it would be anything else. And so some of that would be, okay, you got you know a trivial amount of, uh, of uh, elevation in your troponin. You got other reasons to worry about the patient. Uh, you've got uh, uh, something that says, uh, you got some of these risk scores that might uh, indicate, okay, your 30-day MACE is, is, uh, is more than 1%, even though your troponins are negative. So that's where we are. And then where do you go with that? Uh, and, and there's a, a beautiful pyramid scheme uh, they've put out. So that for the acute chest pain, if you are low risk, uh, if you're high, let's start the other end. If you're high risk, uh, what do you do? You go to the cath lab. Okay. So that, that's pretty clear. Yeah. Uh, certainly if you got STEMI or if you got these other high risk things, bang, you get to the cath lab. If you are low risk, that is that thing with uh, less than 1% risk at 30 days, you go home. No workup. You're in the cath lab, your troponins are negative. You got nothing else that throws you into uh, above. You, you got Loris, get out of here. So you just have to forget about the chest pain, right? It's like, forget about chest it. Chest pain, chest pain, smash pain. Out of here. Uh, now, okay, so the chest pain is something that uh, uh, makes you worried a lot. Uh, no, you don't get out of here because now you've reclassified the patient as not low risk anymore. So this definition, where do you come to that? It's not 100% clear, but there are, uh, it does say that if you're, uh, if you're, you know, worried uh, that this uh, may not be low risk, then you can uh, do something else. But that's it. The goal here is to take the vast majority of people who show up at the emergency room with chest pain, and you decide that this is not, it's either not cardiac. And by the way, they've come up with another thing. Uh, formal guidelines used to say uh, typical chest pain or atypical chest pain or something like that. They've thrown all that out. What they want you to, what they want to do now is say it's, uh, it's cardiac pain. It may be cardiac pain. 
or it's not cardiac pain. Okay. And I, and I don't, I don't think that's bad. I think that's uh, probably worth uh, working on. Uh, and they do have a lot in there about what's typical. I mean, these are typical things for textbooks. I mean, what's, what's angina, what's typical, what's, what makes you stronger, feel stronger. It's, it's a visceral kind of pain. It's sticky, stabby pain. It's very quick. All, all the things that every, everybody hopefully is learning. Uh, although I question a little bit with so much dependent on <laughs> the troponin, are we really taking a good uh, history and uh, getting digging into these patients? So I, I worry about that. The guidelines say we should worry about that, that we should be very careful. Uh, but if, uh, if, if we decide that this patient is not uh, uh, probably, it's probably not cardiac, it's probably, or, or even if it might've been, this, everything is negative, the patient is low risk, uh, send them home and work them up out, outside the hospital. That's actually good for those who missed the diagnosis uh, and the patient comes with a STEMI 10 days later, they can say, well, I, I thought he's less than 1% risk. I send him home. That's what the guideline told yeah. me. Because, you know, uh, if you took the position that uh, chest pain automatically put them in some observation unit and keep them and uh, work them up, the vast majority of those turn out to be nothing interesting. And uh, the vast majority could be worked up. And e- even if they're not, uh, you know, if they're worried about them, work them up on the outside, but don't hold them in the hospital. That's, that's what the guidelines say. For the acute patient. Yeah. So so there is a majority of them going to fall in the intermediate risk. And the question is, we, we said already, high risk goes to cat lab, low risk goes home. doesn't mean that they have to stop evaluation. They still need to be studied outside right, of the right, hospital. Right. So that's anything uh, in between. So what do we do about those intermediate, intermediate risk patients? Well, what we do according to these guidelines is we get non-invasive workup non-invasive. And they say we can either get uh, uh, anatomic workup, namely a CTA, or we can get uh, functional workup, ischemia workup, namely stress imaging. So one way or the other. And what do the guidelines say about how we do that? Well, they, they, they recommend that if you are over 65, that we should uh, lean toward the, uh, I'm sorry, if you're under 65, we should lean toward the CTA. And what's the reason for that? Calcium, maybe. Trying to work, well, trying to rule out. I mean, you read this and, and you get the impression that what they're trying to do is rule out disease. So, You've ended up in this intermediate group. We don't know. This could be cardiac, could be whatever. Uh, but uh, we're not that worried about the patient right now, but uh, we need a workup. And the workup uh, they recommend is CTA. And they recommend CTA because they say a great majority of these will turn out not to have significant coronary disease, not be at great risk. And therefore, we can. We can get them cleaned out. Over 65, they don't recommend a CTA. They recommend stress imaging. Why is that? Well, they say most of these are going to end up with something. 
So now we need to know, do they have ischemia so that we can plan the workup? Now, this seems like kind of an arbitrary cut point. And I'm sure they don't mean that everybody under 65 should get CT, everybody over 65. But it leans you in those uh, directions. And those uh, instructions are clearly in here. It reminds me that it used to be the retirement age. Now it's moved up. But uh, (laughs) maybe those guys were influenced by their retirement age. Um, You know, I, I think that sending everybody to CT is not a bad idea. Uh, you get also calcium score, which can tell you also some risks, even if the patient doesn't have a significant coronary artery disease. And it brings us a lot of patients that uh, have a false positive. Uh, because I have to tell you, we getting we used to get, before we did CT, we got to use about a lot of those bunch of normals. And it's really like when you catch someone, it's a normal. I mean, it's like, okay, like I did. I didn't fulfill all what I wanted to do. It's not very gratifying to get a normal coronaries, uh, like filling all your schedules. So I didn't mind that they will go to CT and then CT, sometimes they miss. uh, But uh, most of the time, I mean, we get some false positive, I think, so that's okay. But we don't get like, for the majority of the cases, if it's a normal, normal day, on the money so I think that I'm okay with it I, I don't know what you feel about it so so yeah so I think the guidelines are not uh, not uh, crazy here the high risk bang to the cath lab I think we're all we're all, yeah, we're we all agree uh, low risk you know really th- these are pretty low risk the way they define it uh, send them home maybe uh, if you want to get a calcium sc- scan or something you want to diagnose coronary so the same as a send them home and treat them like a stable patient after that. Yeah. Uh, and in uh, this intermediate thing, the main point here that they make is, which is different than some of the things going on, that everybody, if you read this thing, everybody should have a non-invasive workup before going to the cath lab. Uh, that's the way it looks. Now, uh, uh, and in addition... Uh, well, let, let me let me jump now to the stable patients. Tell you what it says about stable patients. Again, high risk and low. High risk and low. And so the stable patient presents uh, says high risk. Uh, uh, get an outpatient uh, non-invasive workup. They get non-invasive either same thing, anatomic or functional. And the same thing applies with uh, the sixty-five. Uh, uh, the low risk, low risk. Now, again, we find a very low risk, stable patient, uh, defer testing, defer, don't do, don't, uh, don't jump right into testing. Patient shows up in the office, the stable, uh, don't, uh, do it. Uh, but, uh, maybe here you might get calcium scan or you might get an EKG on them or something like this, but the very low risk, don't, don't, uh, don't get exercise. So again, everybody, almost everybody here is going to fall in the intermediate zone, right? So what do we do with intermediate people? So once again, they, they use this, uh, uh, workup about the high, about the, uh, over and below 65. So really it lumps high risk and intermediate risk together for the stable patients. These all need to get worked up and they're not going to be satisfied unless you, uh, uh, work them up uh, 
and the workup is mainly aimed uh, at non-invasive, and the workup is also aimed at uh, not going to the cath lab in any of these patients unless you've maximized medical therapy. Uh, it really emphasizes that. So the thing that strikes me, Ron, as I as I've looked at this is, and I'm going to give you another quote from the guidelines. which says uh, that, uh, quote, here's a quote. For invasive coronary arteriography, the primary goal is the characterization and detection of a high risk, uh, of a high-grade obstructive stenosis to define feasibility and necessity of percutaneous or surgical revascularization. In other words, coronary arteriography is not viewed as a diagnostic test anymore. You, you know, you might remember uh, in your early days before we had PCI, I certainly remember uh, before PCI, that coronary arteriography was a diagnostic test. We, we, used, it to, you don't have we used it to diagnose people. Now, uh, PCI is not viewed as a diagnosis. Andrew, Andrew is not. It's a preamble. It's part of, uh, before PCI, invasive cath was, was a diagnostic test. Since, uh, since uh, surgery was uh, 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 recommended, if you're going to recommend surgery before we had PCI, that was uh, another step you had to take. Since PCI, the writing committee now views PCI not as a diagnostic step, but as a uh, part of the PCI procedure. Okay? So that's where we've ended up. Yeah, I'll start with the 65. I, I think the 65 is maybe that, maybe someone can look at it, that, Patients over 65 have more calcification, and they, there's a lot of uh, inaccuracy of CT on a heavy calcified lesions. So if you take like people at the elderly age, and I, again, I don't say necessarily 65, but the older they are, they have more coronary calcification, and maybe the CT can miss, so that's why you need more functional tests. Uh, so that's an easy one. I think, you know, old or not old but um, you know when I grew up or you know started cardiology and internal medicine the sequence was you have chest pain not clear you're undergoing stress test stress is positive you go into the cat lab stress is negative you stay home uh, but then came a CT so what really changed the whole thing is the introduction of CT and more and more study to show that CT actually a very high specificity and sensitivity to detect coronary obstruction. Yeah, and then this, this, you know, these guidelines do reflect that uh, the studies uh, show CT better than ischemia testing for, for that purpose. Right. So I don't have any issue with that because, you know, I, I think it's an intermediate step to determine whether you should go and have um, 
cardiac catheterization because I wish all the cardiac catheterization would have done to determine whether I'm doing PCI or cabbage and if I pursue, pursue PCI. I don't want to see normal coronary arteries. I really don't. I mean, I think this is something that I want the CT to tell me. It's simpler. Don't waste my time with normal. But before we had CT, when we had uh, unclear medicine, we used to call it nuclear medicine. No, no, the nuclear was uh, but, but Back then, you know, that uh, uh, the diagnostic cath, or the, the normal cath, served a great purpose. I mean, think of all the patients who you could reassure. Uh, you told them that you know, many of the chest pain goes away. Uh, they feel feel uh, much better. Uh, and uh, and you can guide your therapy. Uh, so that was that was fine. But uh, but now the question is, these guidelines are not written uh, just uh, off the top of the head. I mean, there are a thousand references in this thing. Uh, people have uh, struggled with it. It's been reviewed. It's gone over. So there's there's some evidence that uh, these things have a way. But the the attitude uh, toward the cath is uh, is one that uh, uh, interventional cardiologists will not behave themselves. Uh, they will uh, once they do that diagnostic cath, they've got the stent right there and the, ready to go, and it's going in. That, that's that's the attitude, and uh, that uh, maybe they're correct, and uh, maybe that's uh, what we're doing. I don't know, but uh, I do think that. Uh, uh, we don't necessarily follow these guidelines to a T because uh, diagnostic cath uh, often uh, in the acute setting with the uh, patient in the intermediate group uh, gets a diagnostic cath before these non-invasive tests. And in the stable patient, I think uh, also, you know, not everybody gets uh, stress imaging uh, before they get a cath, not everybody gets a CTA before the cath. I mean, the CTA, I don't know what the, what's the utilization now. I mean, I think it's a, has a great uh, possibility, but uh, of course the CTA may not be diagnostic in itself, as you point out, because of calcium and a lot of things. Yeah. So I, I think the CTA is not utilized enough. Uh, in our institution, it's rarely we see it. I mean, we see more than we used to see before, but it's, it's definitely not reflecting what the guidelines suggest to do. Uh, I think it's still the habit to send everybody to the cat lab. It's pretty good. And plus, okay, so let's talk about issues. Not everybody can fit the CT. Nobody, people, you know, sometimes you have to better blockade them. Then people with stents, there is no way that they can tell you accuracy what's happening within the stents. Uh, so it's not like to replace 100% of the cat, but I think from the normal patients or nearly normal or likely small probability to have a coronary artery disease, to rule them out by CT, to me, it's I, I, I'm fine with it. I don't think it's taking much of my job security. I rather deal with a simple tool that doesn't, that I don't have to bother with it. So I think, you know, what really changed is that CT is good. Why we're not using it enough, that's a different question. I mean, I, I, you know, even CTFFR, which give you physiology, seems to be very appealing, right? I mean, like, you can get not only the lesion, but you can get the physiology. And yes, there are mistakes here and there. We showed a few in our CAT conference, but, and we're writing a series of those. But for the great, 
if you're really on the 70% or, or 50 to 70, they, they're not that bad, but people are not using it. I mean, I know, I know the company is struggling, hard flow. Uh, so something is disconnect here between. Yeah, they do bring up they do bring up the uh, CTFFR as an add-on thing. It gets a bit of credit in this guideline uh, more than before. They do emphasize they, they do give a much more uh, for the stable patients. The calcium score uh, businesses gets gets increased in emphasis. And as I mentioned, the high sensitivity troponin gets a great deal of emphasis here as a rule out to measure in the in the ER. Yeah, one thing that the cat can give you if you have a question about the lesion, you can do more uh, invasive imaging like OCT and IVUS, and that gives you some more info, and maybe in the future infrared technology to see lipid-rich pool, because that's, I think, uh, going to be the non-culprit lesion are really the one that we don't pay attention. Uh, these are the one that looks like maybe 50%, 40%. Black burden could be still... Um, 60, 70 percent, but <clears throat> you don't feel like you need to do anything with them. Uh, you call well, once you get once you get to doing all those invasive uh, uh, imaging tests and and uh, physiologic tests, uh, you, you've you've left the diagnostic cat. You, you left the uh, diagnostic workup behind. I mean, you're you're now trying to decide whether you need to intervene on those things. Yes, some of those you're going to not intervene on. That's fine, but I mean you're. Yeah, I would agree uh, that uh, that's uh, that's not the workup of chest pain anymore. That's the workup of uh, a vulnerability of lesions and that sort of thing. And, and maybe uh, prim- secondary prevention or even primary prevention. Yeah. But it's yeah. a uh, it's a different topic for from what we started with the guidelines. But uh, so so maybe if you summarize, where do you have the trouble with the guidelines? I mean, are, because they're kind of wiping up CT right now from the options. I mean, they just leave you uh, the anterior medicine and the. Uh, I think I think I, I I don't think they put enough. They give uh, uh, stress imaging, ischemia imaging, uh, a little more uh, credence than I think it deserves. I think compare. I think the I think the CT. Uh, CTA probably deserves a little more uh, than it uh, than it got, although it got a lot. Uh, the uh, the fact that uh, occasionally a diagnostic cath may may be indicated uh, is uh, also something that that bothers me. But but I know where it's coming from. It's coming from the fact that uh, once. Uh, the, most casts now are done by in, invasive interventionalists, and most uh, interventionalists are are uh, looking to see if their intervention could be helpful, and so the patient is very close. So the decision-making process, I think the writing committee is uh, looking at cost containment as part of their charge, and you might think that has nothing to, no place in guidelines, but in their preamble, they admit that uh, it does have. And so uh, the idea that uh, uh, the decision-making process, which is also emphasized in this guideline, the heart team process, the patient involvement, the, uh, the patient's uh, input into the whole decision-making process, this is impeded a little bit if the patient is in the cath lab on the table. So 
I think there's a strong uh, emphasis here that uh, you want to involve the patient, you want to do. Uh, and they're talking about uh, decreasing and non, non, uh, non, non, uh, non unnecessary testing. But you can take that the other way around and you can say, is it really necessary to do ischemia testing? Is it really necessary to do all these things in the patient who, for all intents and purposes, has something that you uh, have good evidence that this patient really has a, a, a strongly, uh, has a great deal of, a, of uh, uh, symptoms. The patient's symptoms are most likely due to coronary disease. Your most definitive test is going to be a cath. Uh, that cath can uh, solve the problem with a stent right away because of whatever you've seen on the EKG, whatever you've seen from before from this patient, uh, they've got pre, pre-existing uh, tests that make you think uh, this is what needs to be done. And they, and they deal with that. They deal in the guideline with what you knew before patients that uh, you know they've got coronary disease. Their symptoms have gotten worse. Uh, and uh, there is leeway in there to go straight to the cath lab and find out if there's uh, if their lesions have gotten worse and now that's accounting for the symptom and you can fix it. Yeah, in a way, I feel it's like an insult to the cardiology because uh, if you can, or to the internist, if they cannot make a decision easily whether the patient needs a cath or not and they need to be lean on all those, basically said, we don't trust what you yeah. do. You don't know how to take history. You don't have to have clinical judgment. We are just going to go by those pathways. But I think they should have left a room to a clinical judgment to say, I know for sure. Like if I have someone who tell me a story of classical angina, that he walks one flight of stairs, he needs to stop, take maybe nitro, and then he feels fine. I'm not going to send him to a stress test. I'm going to cause him an infarct. I don't even need to send him to a CT. I'm going to tell him directly to go to the cat lab. So it's actually looking on this... Uh, Oh, we don't have any more knowledge how to diagnose patients. We don't have any clinical skills. And the other insult that I feel is about all our fellows that, you know, we teach them how to cath, but maybe you don't need to teach them anymore how to cath. It's going to be just the interventional cardiologist. If you decide to be interventional cardiologist, you need to know how to cath. But if you're not, then then why would I even teach you to cath? I mean, you need to know how to look at films. But Well, let, let me say before I leave this subject completely that uh, there were good clinicians on this writing group. I'm sure they know exactly what you just said. And if you read these carefully, you will find the out to do exactly what you just said. Uh, there, with enough suspicion, you can move away from just troponins and just uh, automatic uh, uh, stress testing and, and the rest of it, and, and you can move to invasive cath. But when you read the read the uh, the uh, uh, pathways and all these nice uh, pathways, it, you have to read a long time to get to those. So if you look at it superficially, you get the impression that everybody has to have non-invasive workup and everybody has to have maximized medical therapy and all that before you can move for, further. Uh, but there are exceptions if you if you read through it carefully. Yeah, which probably um, my issues with the guidelines, I don't like guidelines in general. I think they are not dealing um, for all the patients. There's always patients that 
don't fit exactly what the guidelines are supposed to tell you. Uh, so where do you go to the guidelines? When you have to defend yourself in court, when you have to be on a podium and say something. But between you and the patients, uh, there are so many things that it's very hard to fit in guidelines. And we give too much weight to guidelines. I mean, I think it's fine to give you directions and suggestions, but people look at the guidelines like the Holy Grail and the Holy Bible, and I think it's too much weight. And it, it, it's, it's, we have to stay away. A but, but if people are still in, interested in being educated, the guidelines are the best uh, review article you'll ever find because it's reviewed every single thing and then expressed an opinion about it. So I recommend them. As a, as a light reading sometime, if you've got nothing else to do, to, if, you're, if you've been diagnosed with COVID and you're shut, they can't go to the office, just to pick them up and that'll, that'll keep you entertained for a few days. But that's only if you can get to read through all of them because they're so <laughs> lengthy and lengthy. And you know what people do is they just look at the tables, to yep. A, to B, C, boom. That's, the, that's, how, that's how you read guidelines today. But anyway, Spencer, thanks for sharing with us this uh, uh, perplexed concept uh, but I can rest assure you that the number of cats are not going to decrease it's actually going to be increased with all those testing because there's always those false positive and we'll see more of those tests going on so we'll just see more um, I think the number of cats not going to come down not, not significantly alright Thank you, and thanks for everybody for joining us. I know it was a bit lengthy, but we had to go through a very complicated topic, and you take it whatever you want to do with the guidelines. Just read them. Okay, thanks. See you later.